There's beautiful animals, there's power in the waves. The sound of the ocean is something that, you know, I think many of us know, even if we don't live near the ocean on a regular basis. When I was a kid, we would go to Puget Sound in Washington State, and we'd explore the tide flats, and I'd spend hours catching crabs, poking at sea stars and anemones. And then if you go under the ocean, which I love to do, you know, that's even more amazing. There's this whole underwater world, and I just fell in love. Whether we know it or not, we are all intimately connected to the ocean. Our lives literally depend on the ocean. And beyond that, three billion people worldwide depend on fish for food and essential nutrition. And the oceans provide people with livelihoods and economic opportunities. So even if we don't know it, we all have a stake in ensuring that the ocean continues to be a vital resource going forward and something that we keep healthy because our lives literally depend on it. We are now in the decade of action, and here we'll talk with companies and experts from all over the world about how they're taking actions on the STDs. To learn from each other about the challenges, opportunities, and solutions on the road towards 2030. From the GRI, this is The Rising Tide. Episode on STD 14, Life Below Water. Kate Bonson, the girl who fell in love with the ocean, is now the Ocean's Global Initiative's Vice President at the Environmental Defense Fund. Passionate about the marine ecosystem, she leads a team of experts who work to reverse overfishing and bring back the balance. But why? Because... Our oceans and our fisheries are in trouble. The, the single biggest threat to the oceans is climate change. Oceans have been absorbing carbon dioxide and heat from our warming environment for decades, and it is really taking a toll. Um, and it's taking a toll not just on the ocean ecosystem, but on people too. You know, for example, our oceans impact weather patterns um, all over the world, and climate change is creating extremes. Some places are getting wetter, others are getting drier. So we urgently need global solutions that will keep us within 1.5 degrees of warming, so climate change is a really big threat to the to the oceans. Overfishing is also taking a huge toll. Um, and together, these twin challenges are really putting strain on fisheries, our, these beautiful marine ecosystems that we've talked about, but also on food supplies. And that impacts people. So climate change is a big threat to our oceans, but it's not the only one. So is overfishing, for example. And as these problems endanger the marine ecosystem, they also undermine food security and put our economies at risk. Without sustainable management, fisheries will face collapse and will face a food crisis. Sustainable and small-scale fishing practices sustain livelihoods and help ensure food security. And fisheries are one of the key ways in which they are all tied together. 
Um, fisheries provide not just food, but also livelihoods for people all over the world. And this year, as you noted, is the International Year of Artisanal Fisheries and Aquaculture. Um, and it's extraordinarily meaningful because it's really helping to shine the light, light on the importance of our oceans and SDG 14. The issue here is that roughly a half of these fisheries catch come from small-scale fisheries, and 95% of that catch is destined for human consumption. But when it comes to industrial fisheries, only about half of the catch goes to humans. The EDF has tried to tackle this by implementing solutions that lead to restoration and replenishment of fish stocks, which means more food for people and more prosperity for communities who depend on fishing for their livelihoods. EDF is working with partners and communities all over the world, and our approach centers on three key aspects. So the first is to really ensure that fishers and communities are deeply invested in the long-term sustainability of our resources and that they can be the frontline stewards of the ocean. So to achieve this ability for fishers and communities, they need secure tenure over their resources and they need the science, the tools, the technology, and the governance to actually put that in place and to do that in a way that is mindful of climate change and is going to actually create long-term climate resilience and climate resilient management of fisheries. The second thing is that to create change at the, the pace that we really need to meet these pressing challenges, we really um, are building a broad constituency of stakeholders. So this broad constituency includes small-scale fishers, scientists, other NGOs, people who care about hunger, poverty, malnutrition, um, et cetera. And then the third thing that we're really focusing on is to ensure that we have the most impact. We're focusing on transforming fisheries in the, the key places that will account for more than 60% of the global catch in 2050. For example... One of our premier projects right now, especially in this international year of artisanal fisheries and aquaculture, is um, a resource we've created called the Small Scale Fisheries Resource and Collaboration Hub. It's, that is a partnership between EDF, um, Small Scale Fishers, the United Nations, and others. And it really connects fishery stakeholders to resources and to each other as they're trying to figure out how to become more sustainable and navigate um, climate change challenges. In South America, we're working with uh, Peru and Chile and Ecuador on what, what's called an early warning system. So all three countries for the first time are actually um, sharing their scientific data in a real-time way. And they're tracking what's happening in the ocean with different oceanographic conditions. And those can then send signals to um, managers and fishers about what's happening so that they can start to adjust the way that they're managing their fisheries in response to the, the real-time conditions in the oceans. And going beyond the actual solutions they're working on is something that Kate already does because she knows the power of these innovations. An ultimate uh, manifestation of that would be to have sensors on fishing boats that are going out that are tracking oceanographic data, like the temperature of the water, um, you know, how the currents are moving, what the winds are, you know, those kinds of things, because that actually can give us input into what's happening in the ecosystem. And it can tell us, oh, are the waters getting warmer or colder right now? And what is that? What will what impact will that have on fish species and where they might move? And so if you can think about using 
um, fishing boats and platforms as a way to actually collect and generate some of this data because they're out there, then how can we, um, then we can capitalize on it to, to know more about what's going on and have more precision management, which is what we're ultimately, ultimately going to need to be able to be really um, responsive to the climate change impacts that we're seeing come down the line. We have seen that we have an opportunity to restore our oceans to abundance by putting new instruments in place to direct public and private investments to fishing communities and sustainable fisheries. I mean, I remember working with a fisherman in Sweden and I, I asked him once, um, you know, how, how long I knew his father had been a fisherman and his grandfather. And I asked him how long his family had been fishers. And he said, as far back as I can see, like there, there is no end. We've always been fishers and many fishers around the world are the same. You know, this is what their family have done for generations and it's what they want to continue. They, they are in many ways, the greatest stewards of, of the ocean. If we give them the right rules and policies to support that. Kate spoke about one side of the problem and the solutions they're working on to tackle it. Of course, the issues faced by fisheries are different from those faced by some of the biggest shipping companies in the world. You're about to hear from Lina Serpe, head of Mass Corporate Sustainability and ESG team. If we look at how MASK impacts the sustainable development goals uh, in, in general, then uh, the, the greatest impact that we can have uh, is really on decarbonization. But when we look to other goals, uh, there are uh, certainly also uh, the, uh, the, the SDG-14 with life uh, underwater. Uh, it's clear to us that, uh, that first of all, um, decarbonization uh, in itself uh, of shipping Uh, will have a major impact uh, also on improving um, the health of the oceans, transitioning to uh, shipping operations uh, that are carbon neutral, low carbon, will also have a positive uh, impact again by by reducing um, other potential uh, uh, negative environmental impacts such as, for example, spills talking about the ESG, it's not only about seeking new opportunities for business and preventing or mitigating risks. Uh, but, but of course, it drives a greater focus on data and reporting and about being able to uh, standardize to a greater extent and quantify also both the, the, you know, the areas where we potentially may have a negative impact, how we are managing potential negative impact Um, on the environment and on society, but also what are the strategic opportunities, uh, right, for us as a company. And so, so in addition to the sustainability report, we also produce an ESG uh, data table, which is more of a sort of a uh, a repository of KPIs uh, on uh, ESG uh, topics. And then also in our annual report itself, Uh, we also have been in the last few years continuously, I would say, adding more and more ESG and sustainability, uh, both narrative in terms of actually, uh, you know, communicating through the annual report and specifically to, I would say, the sort of mainstream investor audience, why sustainability and ESG is um, why and how it is strategic uh, to us. 
Mask has a very clear ESG strategy, and one of its main points looks at the environment and ecosystems. But when it comes to the topics related to ocean's health, there's still no clarity as to what it takes to be able to provide accurate reporting information to the stakeholders. For example, imagine tracking underwater noise to determine how these decibels affect mammals. This is why MASK is working on the solutions to the problem. But as Lena said before, decarbonization has the greatest impact for them, and they began setting internal goals to achieve this a couple of years ago. We don't know how we are going to get to zero, but we we just know we have to do it. And we setting the target was as much also intended as a signal, as a very strong signal, right, of our commitment uh, to our customers, to policymakers, to suppliers, to say we have to get to zero. We must now work together. We need you customers to push us and uh, the rest of the industry to work with us on identifying the future fuels uh, and uh, and supporting uh, our efforts to for innovation. We need policymakers uh, uh, on their side to uh, incentivize uh, as well. Uh, you know, first movers uh, in this uh, area. We need uh, suppliers, not least, right, uh, to develop these uh, fuels that uh, that can be used. And actually, what we found is that surprisingly, uh, also to us, we found that we were actually able to move much more quickly than we thought was possible. Uh, and because we were able to see that we could actually accelerate the progress so much, we came out in January of this year uh, and actually announced that we would be able to move our target for net zero up by 10 years. So, so it's now a 2040 target for net zero and it, and we have also extended it to cover not only ocean but our entire business operations um, across ocean landside uh, and um, and also across all emission scopes right so also uh, including our supply chain and as the regulators of our climate the health of the oceans is intimately connected to our own health we depend on them because it's a fluid ecosystem, because nutrients can move really quickly through it, it can regenerate itself relatively quickly and it can bounce back in a way that some of our land ecosystems um, take longer to do. The Rising Tide podcast is co-produced by the TRI and Naranja Media. We want to thank Kate Bonson and Lena Serpa for sharing their time and expertise. We also want to thank the Swedish government for making this podcast series possible. We greatly appreciate their long-standing support for sustainable development work, catalyzing actions towards the SDGs. Thank you for listening.